Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap podcast. Uh, we're on to Tax Wrap episode 163. I'm back with you, Steve Burnham, speaking, back with uh, David Ebden. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. And we have, as a special guest today, Mr Simon Dorovich from A&A Tax Legal Consulting. Thanks for coming in, Simon. Uh, my pleasure, Steve. And now we've got Simon in as um, our expert on things FBT. Uh, that's right, it's benefits tax, <laughs> it's, it's that, that time of year. That time of year, exactly. So um, people are thinking about it and ask, being asked questions by clients about it and uh, scratching their heads about a few of the things. Um, what they will be scratching their heads about is the new things that have happened since last time. So um, Simon, I believe you're, uh, you're going to tell us a few wise words about what's uh, changed since the last uh, FBT period. Uh, that's right, Steve. Uh, there's always lots that happened uh, and I thought I'd pick out uh, a few of the, the most important uh, changes that yep. practitioners, practitioners should know about. Uh, perhaps we'll start with a draft practical compliance guideline, okay. uh, PCG 2017-D4, uh, and that's looking at the uh, exemption for uh, uh, utes and panel vans and, and similar vehicles right. uh, that are used in a uh, uh, particular uh, e- exempt way. Uh, so, so broadly, what this is referring to is there's an exemption for fringe benefits tax that applies when an employer's, uh, sorry, an employee's use of an eligible vehicle is limited to uh, one travel in the course of performing their employment duties. So that you know is typically business travel. Yep. Yep. Uh, two travel between home and where they're performing their employment duties. So the work site or wherever uh, it is? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. home to work and work to home at the end of the day. Now, typically that uh, would not be a a business trip, it would be a private trip, but for the purpose of this particular exemption, uh, it's that kind of travel is okay. Okay. Uh, And finally, other private use that is minor, infrequent and irregular. Right. Now, to date, unfortunately, there hasn't been a whole lot of guidance on what is minor and frequent and irregular. Uh, So people have been unsure whether or not they can uh, apply this exemption uh, to what would otherwise be a a car fringe benefit if the vehicle provided meets the definition of a car or a residual fringe benefit uh, if it's uh, some other form of I suppose being being naturally being human, they people might be reluctant to make a claim on an exemption if they don't have that guidance. So it's good that this has come out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I imagine there are many people that are taking a, a conservative yeah, approach. Yeah, naturally. Yeah, no one likes to be pulled up by the ATO and uh, told otherwise. But uh, what's the guidance say then, uh, Simon? So the guidance has uh, introduced some safe harbour amounts where the ATO says if the other private use is below these amounts then we'll accept that uh, that private use it does meet the definition of minor, infrequent and irregular. Right. So the, the first condition is that the travel between the employee's home and place of work, uh, sorry, that the travel is between the employee's home and place of work right. 
and any diversion adds no more than two kilometres to the ordinary length of the oh, trip. Oh, okay. okay. So, so if, if you want to go pick up a newspaper on your way to work, <laughs> uh, just uh, perhaps measure the... Uh, the, the distance, uh, the, the news agency on the uh, uh, on Google Maps, and uh, just make sure that it's not a, a diversion of more than two kilometres. Make sure that it's not more than two point whatever away from where you're going, and yeah, I'd exactly imagine you'd be able right. to find somewhere like that, or Seven Eleven or something. Yeah, or, or dropping the the kids off to school would be a, another example of a, oh, okay. a common that's, diversion. That's handy. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the second uh, condition is that no more than seven hundred and fifty kilometres in total. Uh, for each FBT year, for multiple journeys taken for a wholly private purpose. Okay, yep. Uh, and the final condition is that no single return journey for a wholly private purpose exceeds 200 kilometres. Okay. Uh, so if you if your private travel for the year was 600 kilometres, but you know, 250 of that was made up of one particularly large trip, perhaps yep. you were... Uh, relocating, uh, oh, moving yeah. home to picking up a part, uh, perhaps. Yeah, picking up exactly right. Yeah. Uh, mm. That that would knock you out. So okay. it's got to be less than seven hundred and fifty, or seven hundred and fifty or less, or in, in a total, year. Yep, and no uh, single return journey of two hundred kilometres. It seems generous, but then, then I, mean, I don't want to, yeah, put these limits down seven hundred and fifty kilometres and two hundred kilometres. But I suppose we're talking about a country that does have large distances to be travelled by workers every now and then. It's, um, you know, Australia is a large place, so um, maybe that's not over-generous. Yeah, it's probably quite easy to uh, uh, to go over those those amounts. I but, suppose. Uh, at least people know where, where they stand now. Well, that's the thing, exactly. They know, they know the limits. It's, it's, some, it's a really helpful guide, actually, when yeah. you look at it. It's great. Yeah. Uh, of course, there are... Uh, conditions, uh, uh, as always, as you'd expect, <laughs> uh, before you can apply these uh, safe harbour amounts. So I, I thought I'd just go through them briefly. Yep. Uh, so the first is that the employer must provide uh, an eligible vehicle to a current employee. Right. So uh, you're probably wondering what's, what's an, an eligible, eligible vehicle. <laughs> always always the question. That's the natural question. Yep. So, so an eligible vehicle is uh, a taxi, panel van or utility truck designed to carry a load of less than one tonne. Right. Uh, or a car designed to carry a load of less than one tonne that is not designed for the principal purpose of carrying passengers. Oh, yeah. And or finally, uh, vehicles that do not meet the definition of a car. Uh, so, for example, that would be vehicles with a carrying capacity of more than one tonne and or designed to carry fewer than nine passengers. Uh, so, so your typical... Uh, sedan uh, or hatchback, yep. uh, you would not qualify as a potentially exempt vehicle. I see, right. Uh, utes and panel vans uh, are the, the most common types. I, I think a term you've used before, Simon, is a workhorse vehicles. Um, uh, yes, I, I, I don't think that's a, a, an official term that the ATO <laughs> use, but uh, yeah, it, I think it gives people an idea of the, the kind of vehicles that are... Yep, no, uh, of course that are eligible, potentially eligible for Yeah, this, no, it's, it's a good way to exemption. put it, yeah. I, I was uh, unaware of this, uh, as we just said, workhorse vehicles and guidance, but there was also guidance released related to fleet cars, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's right. The, the, the guidance was originally issued in 2016. Uh, it's a Practical Compliance Guideline 2016-10. Uh, but what's new during the previous 12 months is that it's it's been 
uh, updated uh, and a frequently asked questions page has been added to the ATO's website. Uh, just to clarify some questions that uh, practitioners were asking following the release of the, the original uh, PCG. So, so just to recap, uh, where, generally speaking, where there is no valid logbook for a car, the, set, the business use percentage for the operating cost method is nil. Uh, and if you've got a business use percentage of nil, effectively that forces you to use the statutory formula method. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, it, it's sometimes the case that uh, had a logbook been kept, the business use percentage would have been quite high. So for, for in those sorts of scenarios, it really is quite a, a disadvantage to the uh, employer mm. when their employee hasn't kept a logbook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, as any employer knows, if you ask enough employees to keep a logbook, uh, you're guaranteed to find that at least one of them hasn't done it or right. hasn't done it properly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe they didn't do it for the required period of time or they didn't keep sufficient uh, information. Yeah, forgot uh, about it. Or there's always excuses, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly right. <laughs> Uh, so the ATO came up with a bit of a concession, uh, qu quite a generous one, I think. Yeah. Uh, and they've said, where employers employers maintain a fleet of 20 or more tool-of-trade vehicles and there's a valid logbook in place for at least 75% of the fleet, oh, yeah. then they can take an average business use percentage from that 75% or more portion right. that, that has the valid logbook and apply the business use, use percentage to the vehicles that don't have the logbook. Okay. Well, that's good. So, so say we have 20 cars. If 15 of them have done the right thing, you can just average that out over the other five and we're all okay. Exactly yeah, right. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, – and now in terms of calculating the average, there's, there's two different ways that the ATO will allow you to go about it. Right. Uh, one is you could – Calculate the average separately for each car. Oh, sorry, calculate the business use percentage separately for each car yep. and then average those totals. Uh, or you could add up the total business kilometres travelled on all of those, uh, L, those that have kept the logbook yeah, yep. and divide that by the total... Of vehicles. Total kilometres. Oh, kilometres, sorry, sorry. Uh, so... Okay. Uh, effectively, uh, yeah, my recommendation would be do both, see which gives the, yeah, the better result because you know, they're both uh, equally acceptable to the ATO. Uh, so, so now that we've recapped what this uh, PCG is all about, uh, let's have a look at what's new. So yep. uh, some things that they've clarified uh, are, firstly... Only qualifying cars can be taken into account in assessing whether the employer has a fleet of 20 or more tool-of-trade cars. Uh, so to be a qualifying car, uh, it must be a tool-of-trade car, so to, uh, to perform duties that require extensive business use of the vehicle. Uh, it also needs to be chosen by the employer, a, a make and model uh, chosen by the employer. Okay, yep, it's interesting. So the employee can't say, oh, well, I would like that Hilux, please. Uh, no. the, yeah, that's right. Mm. However, another thing that they've clarified uh, is if the 
employer provides the employee with a list of vehicles. Ah, yeah. Uh, that you you can have any car as long as it's on this list. Okay. And that list ha- could be. Uh, 10,000 vehicles. There's no limit. Uh, So uh, the requirement to be chosen by the employer uh, can still give the employee uh, quite a a lot of choice choice. if if, uh, the employer goes the effort of Of putting many vehicles on on that. I can see a future PCG being issued (laughs) to limit the number of choices. But anyway, for now, that's how it stands. That's good. Yeah. Uh, So... Another thing they've clarified is what happens when a car is destroyed, uh, say, by an accident ah, or yeah. natural disaster. Yep. Uh, and maybe the employer was right on that 20 and, uh, you know, the employee uh, unfortunately crashes their vehicle and suddenly they're, they're at 19 and no longer can access this concession. Right, right. Uh, well, the, the ATO's taken a... Uh, a reasonable common sense approach here and they've said that the employer can continue to apply apply the concession provided that before the end of the FBT year the car was replaced within a reasonable time frame. Right. So I'm not certain what a reasonable time frame is but I imagine no. it would allow you know allow the employer to to get the insurance money and uh, shop around shop around yeah. and okay. I suppose it's, uh, it might be tested by cases in the future, but who knows? The word reasonable is always uh, a good word to have in a way because, you know, we're all reasonable people. <laughs> yeah. We can argue. Um, what's the word? Um, have a reasonable case to argue mm. that this is or is not a reasonable time frame. I think the uh, the old old cases referred to the the, the man on the, the Clapham omnibus. Uh, <laughs> really? Was, uh, uh, that's uh, the... The euphemism for for a reasonable man. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not actually sure where Clapham is. Or it's something for us even to what look an up. omnibus is, to be honest. <laughs> um, David, that's the one to, for us to look up for our um, um, funny facts. Oh, we yeah, haven't decided on our segment yet, but uh, we're going to be. Uh, I know there's a Clapham in London. Okay, um, yeah, probably yeah, it's probably yeah. that Clapham. Uh, yeah. Yep, <laughs> and the buses okay. might have been made there anyway. Uh, and just w- one last thing uh, I wanted to mention on this um, large fleet yep. uh, PCG. Uh, generally, I, th- I think, uh, in my opinion, it's quite a generous concession, but there is a, a way that some employees could be left worse off. Uh, and the reason is where an employer uh, chooses to adopt this approach uh, of applying the average business use percentage to the, uh, uh, to, to the fleet, yep. uh, they also need to calculate... Adopt that approach when calculating the uh, an employer's individual fringe benefits tax amount that goes on their their payment summaries. Okay, uh, which of course the employee won't get taxed on, but no. it can potentially affect uh, their entitlement to to offsets and yeah yeah the know, whole government. remuneration package. Uh, exactly, right. and so potentially there are uh, employees who are having a a lower business use percentage applied for these purposes mm. uh, than uh, would otherwise be the case. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's that's just uh, bad luck for them. Swings and roundabouts, I suppose. Swings and roundabouts, yeah, exactly yeah, right. Fair enough. Um, reading your article as well, Simon, which I found very interesting, you also go quite in-depth on a, a draft ruling relating to travel expenses. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, it's, it's a ruling that uh, goes quite in-depth on the topic. There's... 
Uh, it's a very, very detailed ruling with, with lots of examples. I, I should just mention, sorry, David, you just mentioned that uh, Simon's article will, uh, just for listeners' purposes, uh, benefit, sorry, um, uh, Simon has composed a, uh, a lovely, long, detailed article for The Taxpayer magazine, which is coming out in uh, early, should be with you, early April. Um, we, we're going to wear just before that, so uh, keep an eye out for the taxpayer and you'll be able to read all about it. But sorry, Simon, you were going to um, sketch out what the details were. Uh, sure. So, so this is a ruling uh, TR 2017-D6, so another one that's uh, currently in draft, uh, but uh, I think it should be finalised soon, uh, that looks at the deductibility under Section 8-1, uh, of uh, transportation, so for example, travel by car or by aeroplane, uh, or accommodation, meal, and incidental expenses while travelling. Uh, now, this is relevant, of course, for uh, income tax, we're talking about deductibility here, but also for fringe benefits tax, because uh, for fringe benefits tax, the taxable value of an expense uh, is often uh, determined by reference to the otherwise deductible rule. So. Uh, had the employee been able to deduct the uh, expenditure incurred, then the taxable value would be reduced yep. to the extent that they could claim that uh, that deduction. That's right, yeah. Uh, so th- the ruling, uh, it identifies four types of travel uh, and you know, travel expenses that it, uh, it wants to look at. Uh, first is ordinary home-to-work travel. Uh, now, with some exceptions, for example, uh, if the employee is required to carry transport bulky tools that they can't leave at the, the workplace, uh, that you know, could make home-to-work travel deductible. But for most of us, most of the time, uh, you know, transportation costs to start work or to depart work after you know, the job is done for the day uh, are not deductible. No, right. uh, And this ruling doesn't doesn't change that general proposition. Uh, you know, it, it affirms that that sort of travel is, is typically not deductible. Right. Uh, the second type it looks at uh, is relocation travel. Uh, so, you know, if you move permanently to uh, a new location for, for work, yep. uh, that is uh, typically not deductible and the ruling again uh, it doesn't really doesn't uh, fiddle with that. Uh, doesn't fiddle with yeah, that. Okay, but then it introduces uh, two new kinds of potentially deductible travel. Uh, one is uh, special demands travel. Uh, now, special demands refers to the physical or logistical requirements of the work activity. Uh, so, for example, the remoteness of the work location. A uh, requirement to move continuously between changing work locations, a requirement to work away from home for an extended period of time, uh, or other special arrangement. So, practically, what, you know, in terms of practical examples, what that might mean, uh, a fly-in, fly-out worker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, this ruling follows the, uh, the John Holland case that uh, dealt with deductibility of travel for fly-in, fly-out workers. And, uh, yeah, when I go through this, the factors, uh, uh, I think those who are familiar with the case will will recognise, yeah, the ATO is now saying many of the things that the, the, the federal court was saying was in, in that case. That was out in that case, OK, yep. Uh, secondees, itinerant workers, 
those working in the building and civil construction industry. Right. Yeah, maybe they're a road crew. Yep. Uh, so all these types of employees that are conducting, undertaking special demands travel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, potentially, if they... Uh, you know, meet the uh, the conditions uh, that can now uh, potentially be claimed as a deduction, okay. and if the employer pays for the costs, uh, then the taxable value is potentially reduced under the otherwise deductible, otherwise deductible rule. rule. So I'm sort of imagining, say, construction workers that are sent to a site in sort of outback Queensland, then they're sent to another site in northern New South Wales and have to stay there for months. Mm. That sort of demand, special demands, you've got to be here, you've got to be there, yeah, move that's yourself. Right. And um, no, that, 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 that's fair. And that was all um, eked out in the Holland, John Holland case, you're saying. I, I am not familiar with that case, but uh, I have heard of it. Yeah, that, that was a case where the... Uh, they travelled to uh, uh, the airport in, in Perth uh, and then flew from Perth to the some remote mining location right. uh, or uh, construction location. Uh, uh, now that I think about it, I'm not okay. quite sure where it was they were <laughs> yep. going, but certainly somewhere remote. Uh, and uh, the court found in that case that they were uh, they were on duty uh, from f- for their flight. Yep. Uh, that they were, um, uh, you know, subject to uh, requirements of the employer, the requirements of the, the employer, yeah. exactly, and okay. uh, and for that reason, they um, uh, the travel was on work rather than to get to work. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's actually a good segue into what the ruling identifies as relevant factors okay, in deducting yeah. transportation costs. So the ATO says, uh, one, look at whether the work activities require the employee to undertake the travel, uh, whether the employee is paid directly or un- or indirectly to undertake the travel. Uh, so in many, in many cases, uh, they may not be paid a, an additional amount to, to undertake the travel. It, it's sufficient if the contract uh, identifies that uh, as part of your duties, you may be required to undertake travel for, right, yep. uh, and that your total remuneration package recognises that, that you know, potentiality. That time, et cetera, dedicated yeah. to just to travel. Okay. Uh, then the, the third factor is whether the employee is subject to the direction and control of their employer for the period of the travel. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that was an important one in the, the John Holland case. Uh, and finally, whether the above factors have been contrived to give a private journey the appearance of work travel. Uh, so that's just a bit of an anti-avoidance. Well, yeah, uh, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, because there's always there's always the suspicion that how can this be rorted? Let's put a little line in there to make make sure that doesn't happen too much. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, so uh, so I mentioned four different types of of travel expenditure. You did. Uh, we've gone through three. Uh, now, the, the last one uh, that the ruling talks about is coexisting workplace travel. Uh, again, traditionally that would be non-deductible, now potentially deductible. Uh, and what I mean by coexisting workplace travel is uh, ANA, uh, the, the, our main office is in Melbourne, right. but we've, we've got a, a smaller satellite office in Sydney, okay, uh, and perhaps uh, Cameron, my, my boss, might come to me and say, "Yeah, Simon, uh, we need you to spend uh, yeah, every Thursday and Friday 
for the next six months in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, yeah, helping helping the Sydney staff out. Uh, now, that would be an example of uh, coexisting workplace travel because yep. I would then have uh, my Melbourne workplace yep. uh, for part of the week and my Sydney workplace for part of the week. And it's and, all for the same employer, so... Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and the travel uh, you know, to between Melbourne and Sydney uh, is now potentially deductible. Mm, okay, and that's a change... Yes, that's okay. right. That's, that's the change. All right. But this is, 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 still, is still in draft form or is it just been...? Yeah, still in draft form. Okay. Uh, I'm not quite sure when uh, when we might see it finalised. And, right. of course, there's there's always a chance that when it is finalised, there there could be changes. Yep, yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's important to, to check. And, and the date of application, et cetera, that can change, but still there's no yeah. mention of that yet. Yeah. No. Uh, now, before we move on, yep. uh, I mentioned at the beginning of talking about this draft ruling that it's transportation expenditure and also uh, expenditure on accommodation, meals and incidentals right. related to, to that. Yep. Uh, so generally speaking, that's considered to be a private and therefore non-deductible expenditure. However, the ruling does say that it uh, will be deductible where uh, four conditions are met. Uh, first, that the employee's work activities require them to undertake the travel. Uh, second, the work requires the employee to sleep away from home overnight. Uh, third, the employee has a permanent home elsewhere. Uh, and uh, finally, the employee does not incur the expense in the course of relocating or living away from home. Okay. So is that sort of separate to the living away from home allowance? Uh, that's right. So, so if the, the living away from home allowance uh, is uh, subject to, to fringe benefits tax, right. it's, it's an exemption to the general rule that allowances uh, are not subject to FBT. Right. Uh, and if the employee is uh, employer is um, incurring accommodation, uh, meals and incidental costs. Yep. Uh, that will be subject to to FBT, though th there's also uh, potentially quite generous uh, valuation rules. Uh, so, but there has actually been uh, some uh, some changes in in the guidance of when an employee is living away from home. Uh, so there used to be uh, a 21 day rule of thumb. There was a, a miscellaneous tax ruling that came out quite a while ago now yep. that. Uh, practitioners, uh, it was always a rule of thumb, but still uh, quite handy to to have. That yeah, yeah. If the employee was away for more than twenty one days, then uh, yeah, there's good chance that they're living away from home. If if it's less, then uh, then uh, conversely, they're more likely to simply be yeah. travelling. Travel. Yeah. Uh, so the ATO's removed that, withdrawn that miscellaneous tax ruling. They've ah. they've removed that advice. Uh, unfortunately, they haven't really replaced it with oh. a, uh, a similarly helpful guideline. Yeah. But uh, reading between the lines of the this draft tax ruling, uh, there is the the possibility that the ATO now sees uh, is now of the view that the employee can be travelling for uh, a longer period of time before their uh, considered to be living away from home. I see. Yep. Uh, it's not explicitly stated, but no. 
if you look at some of the examples in, in this ruling, then um, that's uh, potentially the case. But, of course, we'll, we'll wait to see how the... How the final thing pans out. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and you know, how they rule in uh, mm. uh, private rulings and... Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of, to, in my mind, it reflects the changing nature of, of work. You know, we have people that are moving around, not exactly working to the gig economy, as they say, but you get a job, then you get the next job. You may be cons- consulting on these different things. So, um, Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's a, it's it's a good evolving. ruling because, it, it, it yeah, it recognises that the old rulings and guidance was perhaps uh, a bit out of date yeah, for bit style. You know, how, how you say, Steve, yeah. you know, many people are, are working these days. Yeah, 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 I see. Uh, perhaps just the last thing to finish up with yep. uh, is a, a simple one, but uh, obviously pretty important. Yep. Uh, there's been changes to FBT rates. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So if, if you're still applying the 49% FBT rate, uh, you're you're not doing your clients uh, <laughs> a service. Now, th- this is this is a sort of a back to the future thing, isn't it? Because it used to be forty seven. Exactly right, and, uh, uh, and this is all to do with the temporary budget repair that's levy. It, I that's believe. right. That's right. Uh, yeah. That was a two percent charge, and the FBT rent rate went up by two percent to yep. reflect that, and the the gross up rates. Uh, both type one and type two were adjusted to reflect that, and yep. and now that it's been removed. Uh, the the FBT rate has fallen back to forty seven percent. The gross up rates uh, have gone uh, to uh, you know, back to how they were. Right. Uh, and of course, there's as there is most years uh, changes to other rates and thresholds that are just to reflect inflation and oh, uh, like the interest rate. Etc. Exactly, the interest okay. rate has changed. The car parking threshold has changed. The uh, you know living away from home. Allowance, reasonable food and drink amounts have changed. Right, so, right. Uh, just make sure you're double checking these yeah, amounts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we had a list of the uh, changed rates and thresholds in the current taxpayer March issue, yep, March issue um, and then the April issue where Simon, your article will appear. Uh, you go over all the, the more the nitty gritty, etc., that you've just been through, which is really great. I could, of course. Uh, <laughs> there's always lots and lots of changes, but I think those are the. Uh, the, the most important ones yep. that yep. Uh, people should know about. Oh, that's excellent. All right. Um, yep. um, Maybe you'll come back next week and tell us a bit more about... Yeah, next podcast. Um, some more interesting areas of FPT. I, 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 yeah, I'd be happy to, David. Always a pleasure to have you here, Simon, and your very informative sessions that we uh, get out of your, your appearing on the, on the podcast. Okay. Um, thank you very much, David, for filling in uh, with me, as per usual. And thank you very much, Simon, for coming out here and uh, talking to us and to our listeners. Um Listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back with our next segment very shortly. And we're back. Um, that was a fascinating talk that Simon just gave us on FPT, David. Oh, it was. Very um, interesting. I just thought we'd come back and uh, go over what he mentioned, uh, which I hadn't heard before. I think I might have vaguely heard the, what was it, the, the man on the Clapham bus? What, what was yep, it? Yep, that's... The uh, man on the Clapham Omnibus. David, you've been researching that the background to that saying. Um, so how does that apply to the Australian situation? Yes, correct, Steve. I do like my trivia and, <laughs> uh, you know, origins of things, as many listeners will know. Mm-hmm. So uh, the man on the Clapham bus, or Omnibus, as buses used to be called, is um, a hypothetical, ordinary and reasonable person uh, used by the courts in English law where it is necessary to decide whether a party has acted as a reasonable person would. Right. Uh, yeah, as, as Simon rightly pointed out. Um, so 
the man on the Clapham omnibus is a reasonably educated, intelligent, but nondescript kind of person. Right. Against whom, you know, people's conduct yep. can be measured. So this term was first introduced into English law during the Victorian era, and it's it's still a very, very important concept in British law. Right. And, you know, by extension, Australian, Australian law, yep. if, if Simon's using it. Yep. Uh, Yep, it's not just it's not just here and in the UK right. that um, that it's used. It's also used in Canada, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I believe it's used in New Zealand as well. Right. Um, yeah, and and sometimes the phrases are modified to suit for the, local uh, use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For example, I, uh, in New South Wales, they they say the man on the Bondi tram. Okay. Uh, yep. That's a disused tram route. Well, Sydney used to have trams actually yeah, way, yeah. way back when. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, Victorians might say the man on the Burke Street tram. Okay. Uh, there is a Hong Kong uh, example, but I'm not going to wreck the language uh, <laughs> by attempting to uh, pronounce it. What, what, do you have the translation, or is it? Uh... It looks like um, Shaki Wan tram, Shawky Wan tram. Oh, it's in another location, yeah, like Bondi. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, I'd, yeah. Apologies <laughs> the, for any... The man uh, on the tram. Yeah, okay. That's the one. So the phrase was first put to use in a reported judgment in uh, the 1903 English Court of Appeal um, surrounding a libel case. Okay. Believe it or not, it, it might have been um, a junior counsel, a junior barrister that um, uh, coined the phrase rather oh, really? than a... Than a uh, seasoned veteran right uh it, it's believed that the phrase derived from um an old saying um that the public opinion is the opinion of the bald-headed man at the back of the omnibus so <laughs> it, it kind of um it gets better it, it, you know it, it kind of uh developed from there so um clapham um for those uh, who aren't familiar with the geography of london is uh, an area in south london um, okay which is uh, where a lot of um, kind of Australians live when they're over there doing their working holidays. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's where my yep, that's where my wife was living when I met her <laughs> in Clapham. Um, so it's back in the back in the um, early twentieth century. It was seen as a you know a general nondescript okay type suburb, a very usual special. kind of yeah ordinary yeah. ordinary suppose, ordinary the, but uh, reasonable in this instance. As, as Simon was pointing out, it's a, hmm. a reasonable person would be expected to perhaps come from be on the Clapham bus, the Bondi tram, Burke Street tram, the Hong Kong tram. Um, but it's interesting. It's great. Yeah. I and think it's a quirky little uh, thing to use. We should use it more often. Yep. yep. And there you go. And that's uh, my fact of the day. Fact of the day. Fascinating uh, fact day. of the podcast. Yep, we should do go. this on a regular basis, David. If you Maybe dig out obscure little facts and truths and uh, bring them to our attention, I think we'd all appreciate it and be I'll educated. Yep, yep. And entertained. Yes, that's, that's, that's the... Uh, <laughs> That's uh, always good, isn't it? Entertainment. Hmm. Oh, no, anyway, listen, we, we thought uh, that would be worthwhile just to f- fill out that uh, concept that Simon first brought to our attention. Thanks for filling that out for us, David. Absolute pleasure, as uh, always. Listeners, please stay tuned. And we're back. Uh, Steve Burnham again with David Emden. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, David, now in the Taxpayer Journal, um, we've had uh, Majid Sayed writing about streaming income of trusts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that you've d- you divided that story over two uh, issues because it's such a big topic. Yep. Um, the next one, uh, listeners, by the way, is coming up in the um, April, April. M- April magazine, which will be out soon. Uh, so in that, keeping with that theme, mm. um, I think, David, you wanted to talk a little bit about 
distribution is made from trust. Yeah, yeah, I just thought it wise to um, yeah discuss trust distributions and the difference between uh, trust income and the taxable net income. Taxable right. Okay, so just to clear up, the, you know, start start the ball rolling and go through it in a logical way. Mm. First of all, I- explain to me what is trust law income. Okay, so at, at, at its simplest level, um, trust law income is income according to trust law. Right. But <laughs> I suppose we want a bit more detail than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, trust law income also has some vague notions of uh, accounting income or ordinary concepts. But when we get down to it, trust for trust law purposes, um, the trust deed can override the common law principles ah, right. to specify what is and what is not included in trust law income okay, for certain trust. So a deed can overwrite what's in common mm. law. Okay. Yeah, so some trust deeds define in strict terms what is and isn't to be included, and there are others that allow the trustee the discretion to determine what is meant by trust law income from right. year to year. Yeah. Um, and just before we plod on, um, some people may refer to it as trust income, income of the trust, uh, accounting income, net income, annual income. Okay. All these terms, when they're used in trust deeds, are referring to the same thing, okay. which is trust law income. Okay, okay. So uh, what about accessible net income? I've heard that, that term, we better run over that. Yeah, yeah, correct. So compared to trust law income, um, on the other hand, uh, taxable income, assessable income and net income uh, all defined within uh, the 1936 um, Income Tax Assessment Act. Right, okay. Um, these terms are just purely there for the uh, tax legislation and only really exist for the purposes of assessing tax. It should, you know, it's, I should point out that it is not possible for the trustee to override tax law to change the nature of taxable income. Right, okay. Getting a bit complicated. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's not as uh, black and white as but, people think. So, um, what's what what can a trust distribute to to the beneficiaries? Well, um, quite simply, um, in a sentence, um, a trust can only distribute trust law income. Okay. So a trust cannot distribute taxable income, or assessable income, or net income. So, as you just alluded to, Steve, people get confused. Um, especially when the trust deed says that trust law income is to be determined on the same basis as accessible net income. Okay, yeah. Yeah, or I don't know where the trustee exercises its discretion to make uh, trust law income equal accessible net income. Yep. So when we look at that kind of situation, um, the trust deed is importing the concept of accessible net income into the trust deed but this doesn't actually mean that the trust can now distribute accessible net income. Um, what's the best way of putting this? Um, the trustee can still only distribute trust law income. Right. It is just that trust law income now equals the same thing as the Tax Act defines as accessible net okay, income. Okay, okay. So it's, it's all going to be defined. It sounds like it's all going to be spelled mm. out. Mm. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, each income year, I suppose, the trust law income has to be arrived at. Yep. How is that determined? This goes back to a distribution minute. Uh, that's the most straightforward way. Um, a distribution minute normally refers to taxable income or assessable net income. If a distribution minute, Steve, uh, refers to taxable income right. or assessable net income, uh, as we've just discussed, yep. um, a, a, a trust can't distribute that, so the distribution may not be effective. When you say minute, you mean like a note in the d- oh, no, deed? Correct, yeah. Okay. Correct. Right. Um, 
Oh, well, not in the deed, I should say. It's it's a, a document that's drawn up just before the year end. Oh, I get it. So, okay. so it's not actually in the deed. Yep. Um, importantly, I should point out that if the trustee does not provide a trustee with discretion um, to nominate what makes up trust law income yep. on the um, distribution minute, yep. then the trustee must determine trust law income in accordance with the formula or according to the principles adopted in the trust deed. Okay, so the, the trust deed's got to spell out the fallback principles of determining yep. distributable income. Yeah. Okay, yep. okay, okay. Well, that's good. It's becoming clearer. <laughs> so why prepare trust accounts? Yeah, so trust accounts are usually prepared on uh, you know, common accounting principles. Uh, however, the accounting principles do not necessarily match the trustee definition of trust law income or the tax act definition. Hmm. So right. when we're talking about accounting income, we've now got a third uh, category okay. of yeah, income. Yeah. So usually the trust accounts and the trust tax return are the only documents that the trustee is responsible for preparing. Right. Um, rarely do trustees actually prepare a statement of trust law income. If trust law income is defined to match accessible net income, i.e. what is in the trust tax return, then the use of the accounting figures in the distribution minutes is incorrect. This is due to the fact that distribution minutes are then distributing accounting income, which does not match trust law income. And as we've already said, the trustee can only distribute trust law income. Right, yep. Everything must, and I can't emphasise this enough, must always come back to the definition of trust law income. Right. Because, as I keep repeating, the trustee can only distribute Trust law income. That, that income, okay. Mm. Now, you mentioned accessible net income. What happens to, to that? Mm. So, tax is imposed with reference to the beneficiary's accessible income. Um, a beneficiary's accessible income includes their share of any trust net income to which they are presently entitled. Okay, yep. Um, sometimes a beneficiary is not able to be presently entitled to net income. The beneficiary can only be entitled to trust law income. okay. <laughs> it, 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 it does get a bit confusing. Yeah. Um, this, this, but this this issue is the crux of the problem, really, when dealing with trusts and what makes it all complicated. Right. Um, it requires a link to be made between the trust law income and the net income. Uh, and this link uh, is what is referred to as the proportionate approach. Uh, this is just a principle which is used to link um, a trust law concept with a tax law concept. Uh, and it says um, that a beneficiary who is entitled to a proportion of trust law income will be entitled to the same proportion of tax law net income. So, for example, if trust law income is $3,000 and net income is $1,800, then a beneficiary entitled to $2,000 worth of trust law income right. will be taken to be entitled to $12,000 of net income, i.e., Two-thirds, two yeah. Correct. Okay, okay. Your math is still good, Steve. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. Um, but what about in, on the other side of things? What if there's a loss? What, what if there's no trust law income, but hmm. there is, is actually positive net income or there's some sort of credits line hmm. there? So if there's no trust law income or it's a negative amount, then it's impossible for the trustee to make any form of distribution. Yeah, it's The true. trustee cannot distribute something that doesn't exist. exist. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. However, if, if the trust has no trust law income, it may still have net income for tax purposes. Oh, okay. 
but not distributable. Yeah. Distributable. Yeah. distributable, right? Uh, yeah, th- th- this may be because um, net income includes something that is not included in the common law definition of trust law income. For example, franking credits or capital gains. Okay, okay. So yeah. if this occurs, then the net income is, um, for lack of a better word, stuck okay. within the trust. Yeah. Um, this is because there's no beneficiary with an interest in that trust law income. So therefore, the proportion is nil. Huh. Therefore, no beneficiary will be taken to we be get, entitled. Getting yeah. to, to any distribution. Yeah. yeah. So you, the, there's sort of different categories of trust law income, isn't there? So is it... Is it the fact that a, uh, a trustee, I suppose, would need to deal with these different categories of trust law income? Yeah, yeah, correct. They, this is um, predominantly what Majid's article has been discussing in, oh, the, in, uh, in the taxpayer, taxpayer of March and April. Okay. Um, you know, it, 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 it's been an ongoing thing that trustees have sought to distribute certain discrete categories of trust law income to specific beneficiaries. Right. For example, they might want to give, you know, the foreign income to one person, dividends to another, huh. capital gains to a third. Yep. Um, yeah, so these uh, these categories are usually matched um, against a particular category of assessable income, and that is uh, what is known to us as streaming. Streaming, yep. right. And, um, yeah, I, I urge people to... Um, I urge listeners and subscribers to uh, read Majid's article. It's yeah. very enlightening. No, that's within the March and the, it concludes yes, in the April months. issue. Yeah, correct. Okay. You mentioned capital gains. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's uh, another source of income. Um, so I assume that you have to have that valued or worked out. Yeah, yeah. So H- can that be distributed through the trust as well? Yeah, yeah. So firstly, um, the capital gain needs to be calculated, you know. That's, that's just the, the way yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, after that, the trustee can then either distribute the capital gain as part of a general distribution of net income, right? or the trustee can elect to stream capital gains to one or more specific beneficiaries. It's, it's important to note that they can only do that, as I mentioned earlier, subject to the trustee. Okay, so that's got to be all set up in the yep. first place. Um, so when, when is there any time that trust law income needs to be distributed? It, it has always been um, a trust law requirement that trust law income needs to be distributed to beneficiaries um, before the end of each accounting period yep. for the trust. Me, oh, for the, okay. So not necessarily the end of the financial year. If the trust law income was not distributed before the end of the accounting period, right. then either the trust law income was subject to a default distribution or was accumulated to corpus. To, into the same trust. Yep. To, to carry to carry yep. on, so who I mean we're talking about beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. Are they the only people that trust law income can be distributed to? Yeah, the, 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 the trustee can only distribute income to a person who qualifies as a beneficiary under the deed. Yeah, uh, a common mistake that uh, people make is to attempt to distribute trust law income to someone who is not a beneficiary under the trust deed. Right. Uh, again, it all comes back to checking the trust deed. Yeah. And yep. making sure that who you want to be entitled to the money can be. Gets it. I suppose that might come up in, say, if someone is deceased and mm. the, the executive mm. wants to pass on some, some of their wealth. I mean, uh, if it's not in the... Yeah. If it's in a trust, if it's held in a trust, you've got to stick to the trustee. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, I just mentioned um, an executive, but, but who can make these kind of distributions? Yeah, so only the current trustee of the trust can make valid distributions right. to beneficiaries of the trust. Yep. Okay. Um, where there's a corporate trustee, the directors of the trustee company can attend a meeting 
um, yeah, to, you know, determine. Yeah, 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 correct. It's um, it's kind of fascinating, but kind of complicated. And uh, just trouble is, the practitioners have just got to deal with these things every now and then. Yep. You're not gonna, you can't pick and choose your clients, and they might walk in the street with a trust to be taken care of. And um, so it's important to know these things, I'd imagine. Hence our discussion today, hence Majid's two-part, uh, very thorough article in the Taxpayer magazine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, David. Thank you, Steve. Thank, Thank you, you, listeners. Thank you, listeners, myself. And um, that concludes this fortnight's podcast. Please stay tuned in two short weeks. And happy Easter. Mm.